4: Imagine that you've just made the most exciting discovery of your career, but at the same time, you wish it had never happened. Well, that's what it feels like for some scientists discovering rare ice-age bones in the melting permafrost. Produced at the SETI Institute, this is Big Picture Science. I'm Seth Shostak.
3: I'm Molly Bentley. Scientists are making incredible discoveries in the Arctic, pulling a menagerie of animals from the ice that haven't walked the world in 30 or 40,000 years.
0: I was just really struck by this sense of, on the one hand, complete and total magic and wonder at having walked into this glittering ice age time machine and seeing just bones poking out of the frozen soil all around me. It was incredible. Just everywhere you looked, a different animal. And then coming out into the reality of of a warming world and realizing I was listening to climate change, I was watching climate change unfold right in front of my eyes. The world's thawing permafrost could reveal more
3: than the lost beasts of the Pleistocene. It could revive dangerous microorganisms locked away for thousands of years. We are certain of one thing, though. Permafrost holds large reservoirs of carbon, and that is a ticking time bomb. So will thawing of the permafrost gravely worsen climate change?
4: In this episode, what happens when the Earth warms and frozen ground thaws? This episode of Big Picture Science is depermafrosting. Now, usually, when scientists unearth a species from the Paleo era, they consider themselves successful if they find a few bones or maybe a tuft of hair. That's why a cat named Sparta has got everyone's tongue. An extinct cave lion cub related to the extinct American lion and to our modern species of lion, her family roamed what is now Siberia around 30,000 years ago. Well, that's all very impressive, but not why her appearance is
3: making our hair stand on end. Sparta's body was so well preserved by the Siberian permafrost she still had fur, tissues, and organs. Scientists say she's nearly perfect. While melting permafrost and erosion can expose ancient beasts to paleontologists, Sparta was actually discovered by Russian mammoth tusk collectors. The collectors work by zeroing in on permafrost stream banks, where they see a piece of bone jutting out. Then they blast a stream of water into the sediment and ice, dislodging it and carving out a cavern in the process. The slumping permafrost, of course, makes their digging easier. Now, these collectors operate in the gray area, between okay to do it if you have a license to black market smuggling, but those who are above board have arranged to share their finds with scientists.
4: And the scientists who have been alerted to these ice age discoveries say that the news is bittersweet. The permafrost that holds these treasures is under threat. The Arctic's warming, and it warms three times faster than the rest of the globe, and it's turning its once-frozen ground into slush.
0: So I was out at the permafrost caves where Sparta was found, and we had to go in with a permafrost expert who was constantly monitoring the conditions, making sure we weren't going to be killed in a cave-in, which happens sometimes. There there have been slumps and cave-ins, just like the one that probably killed Sparta, right? My name is Jacqueline Gill, and I'm an associate professor of paleoecology at the University of Maine. And yet... Dr. Gill and other scientists cannot help but
3: feel excited by the insights into Pleistocene ecosystems that these Ice Age specimens, like the near-perfect lion cub Sparta, provide.
0: It was really striking to me just how perfect she was. She looked like like a sleeping kitten, right? She's about the size of, a, of a, an average house cat. And... Her fur was still soft. Her claws were still sharp. She had all of her little whiskers. You know, her eyes were closed. Her mouth was open, kind of pulled back as the, the tissues kind of dry out after an animal dies. It's really common for the mouth to be open. And it's it's just amazing to me just how, you know, it looked like an animal that maybe died just a couple of days ago and not 30,000 years ago. And is it more than just Scientifically exciting. I mean, it does also have scientific import. Are you
3: learning something about that time or about those animals?
0: Absolutely. So these specimens, we call them mummies, because they're you know more than just a, a set of bones, right? And they're not even really fossilized; they're still soft. So these these mummies are they're a treasure trove of information. Every whisker records the lifespan of that animal, what it ate, what season it died, its stomach contents can tell us about its diet. Um, All of these soft tissues, the fur, all of that, it contains forensic information. It's just amazing that that DNA or any
3: of the other evidence is preserved for tens of thousands of years. Can you say more about how Sparta was preserved? Because it would have had to occur pretty quickly, right?
0: yeah so this animal would have to have been buried really quickly after she died. And it's a little bit of a mystery how these permafrost deposits are able to to protect and preserve these these animals so fast. It's possible if you if you've ever seen a permafrost landscape today the the soil as it freezes and thaws and in, in the active layer close to the surface forms these really large cracks and those cracks can fill up with water. So one possibility is that you know if these animals are maybe falling into these pits full of water, Perhaps um, they're getting buried in a den of some kind. So that's the thinking here with Sparta and potentially some of the other cubs that have been found in the past. Perhaps, you know, as this permafrost, the surface is thawing, maybe there are landslides or slumps during, you know, warm seasons that might have covered that body up really quickly. And as soon as that that soil refroze around her, that was it in terms of preservation. She was good to go for tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. We don't know for sure, but that's what we think. Well, no discussion
3: of animals revealed by melting permafrost would be complete without bringing in the woolly mammoths and the woolly rhinoceroses. Um, they get a lot of attention. They can even steal the show. But of course, they are the animals that you study, these, these Pleistocene megafauna. Uh, Jacqueline, can you give us an overview of the kind of big animals that we're finding or that you're finding?
0: Yeah. So. <laughs> These, as you say, they steal the show. And I, I think, you know, often for good reason. They're very charismatic. They're, they're the bread and butter of our lab's research, too. Um, but they're also really important keystone species. And if you look at the same region, in fact, the same area where Sparta was found, we're finding woolly mammoth remains, woolly rhino remains. There were also Ice Age bison horses, there were Arctic camels nearby. One of the things we're also working on in our lab is actually not just the animals themselves, but the dung that they leave behind, especially the herbivores, because that dung is a treasure trove of information about uh, the diets and the habitats that those animals were living in. So you're finding the animals, but you're also finding their frozen dung. Yeah, we've got about 60 Ice Age poops in the lab that we're working on right now from the same exact area. And uh, I've got a graduate student who is and undergrads actually who are actively pulling plant material and pollen and other things out of that dung to try to understand the diets of these animals a little bit better so we can piece together not just you know the ecosystems that they lived in but how they impacted those ecosystems so this frozen poop you could call it a poop sickle <laughs> yeah we and we often do <laughs> and you often do okay that's not
3: original um, Jacqueline how do you figure out which animal made which?
0: pile of dung like how do you connect <laughs> the dung to the animal that's a great question so there's two ways we're hoping that by actually scanning them and getting a sense of the shape of the of the dung we can link the the shape with the animal um, of course to do that we need some corroborating evidence and so we're actually hoping that the dna of the the pooper is preserved in the dung and you know if you want to get really technical these are all sub-fossils, right? They haven't been mineralized in the way that we often think of fossils as being. Um, So these are actual poops, and they smell like poop, and they look like poop.
3: Wait, wait, Um, wait. They
0: smell like poop? They're 30,000
3: years old, and
0: they smell? Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You get them in the lab, and if you start putting chemicals on them and warming them up, they smell like poop. I mean, they smell like horse poop or cow poop, right, where it's not it's often really grassy and kind of earthy but but yeah they can definitely smell like poop well so you would get a sense of what it might have been like to walk through a field where these animals had been so it's not just the visual oh that's fascinating sometimes you actually get um this is going to sound really gross but you get the dung if when you have these really amazingly well-preserved ice age animals you have their stomach content still preserved so we actually have some bison stomach contents and then if you go further down in the digestive tract you find the poop that hasn't been pooped yet and that can kind of give you a little bit of a sense of what that should what that should look like and sometimes it's actually found you know, near the animal too
3: so n- no pun intended this time but it really is <laughs> like having a snapshot of life frozen in time I mean of the animal mid-digestion and I wonder if you could share with us what are you learning about the diet of some of these animals or anything that you're learning about these animals but also the whole ecosystem is probably yeah. coming into relief as well
0: We're learning that they had a much more diverse diet than we previously thought. One of the main hypotheses for why these animals went extinct is that they ran out of food, right? The environment, the climate changed, the environment changed, the plants changed, and they basically starved to death. But we're, what we're finding is that there's a lot more flexibility in the diet of some of these animals. They were much more resilient to these climate changes than we previously assumed. And that gives us important information about what the possible causes of their extinction might have been. So if it's not that, that climate changed and then the plants changed and then they ran out of food, then that kind of narrows down the list of potential suspects and starts to point the finger at people a little bit more. And so, you know, information like that is is useful. We're also learning, too, these kinds of, of big herbivores might actually have helped to buffer the impacts of climate change on their ecosystems. And so the changes in vegetation that we see, the plants rearranging themselves as we warm coming out of the last ice age. The, those plant communities might have actually been less resilient to that climate change because the animals were gone. And if you look at places where we still have big herbivores left in the Arctic, things like ox, there's some good modern research that also supports that large herbivores might actually help promote resilience in the communities that they live in by kind of buffering the impacts of climate change. Can you say more about how they provided a buffer against climate change? Yeah, so the way it seems to work, or the way we think it works, is that These animals have preferences, and so by eating some plants, they allow other plants to thrive. So you actually get a more diverse plant community when you have large herbivores. That's something that we see often in modern ecosystems too. Like if you look at places where people are studying the impacts of bison on grasslands, um, oftentimes without grazers, or even browsers, you tend to have less diversity in your plant communities. And there's another body of research that shows that when a plant community has lots of diversity, it's like having um, you know a Jenga tower that has lots of blocks, right? You have a lot of plants that are doing kind of similar things. And so if you pull one block out, the tower is pretty stable still. You pull another block out, the tower is pretty stable. In this case, the blocks are the species, right? So maybe you lose a species here, you lose a species there. The environment's changing you know maybe your your little brother comes along and like bounces on the table right but your, your tower is pretty stable but when you remove more of those blocks or more of those components of that ecosystem then the tower becomes much more vulnerable more fragile and that's the mechanism that we think these animals are playing that by eating certain kinds of plants instead of others by dispersing seeds by trampling the soil and or even um, wallowing like bison would you know we've they kind of roll around on the ground and create these little wetlands there's all kinds of things that these animals do they poop right they move nutrients around that that's contributing to a more diverse plant community now we can take that information and we can say okay well Maybe we need to be creating better habitat for big animals to thrive today. Maybe we could be reintroducing some of those large animals into the Arctic so that we have a more robust ecosystem. And as we change the planet into the future with climate change and other global changes, maybe large herbivores can be a key towards helping to make those ecosystems more resilient to the other things that we're doing. And final question is, it went by pretty quickly, but you said
3: if you eliminate like the loss of food for some of these megafauna, the culprit now is more
0: likely humans. And do you mean overhunting? That seems to be it. So the animals were almost certainly stressed by changing climates, but it's important to remember that they made it through like dozen or so cycles of Ice Age interglacial cycles that we've been through. And they made it through every single one until... The last one. And that's when people start to move across the globe. And so it's really hard to imagine a climate-only scenario. And people have tried to model this using, you know, different approaches. And while extinction is rarely caused by one thing, we often talk about the one-two punch, right? You, You knock a population down and then there's that bad luck of something else happening. So the fact that people start spreading really across the globe during a period of environmental upheaval, of climate change, as we came out of the last ice age, probably did not help. And the mechanisms are thought to be overhunting, maybe some other things like burning or, or other ways in which we change the land. But people have modeled this, and it turns out you, you actually don't have to kill very many animals when they're already threatened by predators and sort of kept in balance. Just hunting a few kind of triggers this cascade with the rest of the population, and then potentially even on to sort of lower levels of the ecosystem. Jacqueline Gill, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you so much for having me.
4: Jacqueline Gill is an associate professor of paleoecology at the University of Maine. Well, this is really exciting because, I mean, I could picture what it would be like in that cave, and you know, seeing a perfectly preserved cat from 30,000 years ago. I, you know, I've been to the, the science museums where they have a brontosaurus or something, like that. but it's just bones. It's not the same thing as seeing it lying in front of you, undisturbed, from the time of its death. The other thing that really struck me, Molly, was when she talked about, well, you asked her, did these megafauna from the last ice age, you know, they, they all disappeared after that. And was that due to hunting by humans? And she made an important point that I had thought of. You know, there have been like 17, 15, 10, whatever, previous ice ages, and these megafauna made it through all those ice ages. It was only the last one where they disappeared, which happens to coincide with the presence of our ancient ancestors.
3: Seth, did you know that there is an ongoing experiment to test the theory that she outlined with us about megafauna being a buffer against climate change? I did not know that. It's called Pleistocene Park. (laughs) And it is a nature reserve. It's in Russia. It's in um, northeastern Siberia, I believe. And what it's doing is recreating that northern subarctic grassland with large herbivores to test exactly what she said, to see what it's like when you reintroduce large animals to an ecosystem and see if they provide some of those balancing mechanisms to the whole ecosystem. That's going on now.
4: No, but they're repopulating them with current Animals, right? They're not going to bring back the woolly mammoth? No,
3: no. They're not reanimating (laughs) de-extinction. There is a a de-extinction movement, but that's not the one that's happening (laughs) in Pleistocene Park.
4: course, not every organism in the ice is nice. A science fiction scenario about a pandemic triggered by the release of a deadly pathogen from an icy prison no longer seems so fanciful. We talk with the author next.
3: We are discussing what happens when the planet undergoes de-permafrosting on Big Picture Science.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash loss.
4: As in Siberia, permafrost blankets Greenland, too. And in fact, almost a quarter of the land in the most northern part of the globe is permafrost. While the ground above permafrost can thaw and refreeze every year... Permafrost, which extends from maybe a foot down to as deep as a mile down, is defined as ground that remains frozen
3: for two or more years. Of course, we're discovering that it's not permanent after all. American geologist S.W. Muller, who coined the term in 1947 as a contraction of the term permanent frost, probably didn't anticipate the rise in average global temperatures over the next 70 years.
4: Ice Age megafauna may not be the only creatures released from icy tombs to greet the modern world, and some of these newly freed organisms may not be benign. So what happens when a deadly ancient microbe becomes airborne? That's the plot line for a new pandemic novel, Phase 6, by Jim Shepard. Written before the COVID-19 pandemic, but not released until 2021, the suspenseful story begins in Greenland, in a small town bordering Disco Bay on the west coast of Greenland called Illamonok, an international mining company has taken advantage of softening Greenland permafrost to dig up rare earth metals. But these substances are not the only things their
3: machinery extracts. Mr. Shepherd reads a passage that describes the moment when 12-year-old Alec and his friend Malik, while trespassing in the mining pit, inspect a beautiful rock that's been dislodged and whose underside has been cracked by miners' drills.
1: Alex showed Malik a rock he'd unearthed, glassy smooth on one side from the polish Ice Age glaciers had given it 11,000 years earlier. Two days earlier, the drill bit's relentless pounding on the rock had finally broken the chemical bonds holding it to its ledge. And when that seam had cracked and the stress boundaries had separated, a cluster of molecules that had previously thrived in the respiratory tract of an early variant of the Bering Goose and that had been trapped with some throat tissue in the crystalline framework during the Holocene glaciation had been reintroduced to the air and the warming sun.
4: The goose microbe sickens one boy who infects others in town. Mr. Shepherd, who's a professor in the English department at Williams College, says his tale grew from news reports and the expertise of scientists. Now, if you had read this prior to our own pandemic era, Phase 6 may have simply been an unsettling story. But now, it doesn't really read like science fiction.
1: About five years ago, I was jolted by a story out of Siberia concerning a 12-year-old boy who'd apparently been killed by anthrax, with 20 others in his village infected. And the Russians were panicked, uh, since anthrax hadn't been recorded in Siberia in over 75 years. And then investigators were stunned to discover that long, dormant spores of the bacteria, uh, frozen in the reindeer carcass, had rejuvenated themselves to infect the boy.
3: Mm -hmm. I remember that case, and the carcass of a reindeer was exposed because of the melting permafrost. Did the investigators ever determine how long those spores had been dormant?
1: No, but since then, of course, we've uh, learned that these spores can be dormant for thousands and thousands of years and still come back to life. They're essentially... Uh, protected by the fact that they are able to sporulate. Um, So whereas viruses uh, can survive in the permafrost but have to be actively revived, bacteria uh, can actually revive themselves. And that was what inspired Phase
3: 6. And so the young boy, his name is Alec, and he has a close friend, Malik, and they're living in a small town in a very isolated part of Greenland on the on the western edge. Can you just give us an overview of that town? That And that's a real town, isn't it? That's
1: a real town, and it's a town I visited. And, and it turns out that pretty much everywhere in Greenland is, is isolated, but Ilulissat is particularly isolated. It's way, way out in the uh, sort of middle of the western coast. And it's a very, very small town. It's only about 80 people. And I wanted to set it there because that area is so beyond the beyond in some ways. The idea that a global pandemic could come from there seemed to me even more fascinating than um, some of the other alternatives. Also, um, where the book had come from as well was the revelation that both Russia and Greenland Uh, had announced extensive plans to mine all across their northern extremities. And because those areas were actually sort of ironically becoming more and more accessible because of global warming, Um, and that would mean that millions of tons of that permafrost that is now thawing and uh, turning over its pathogens to the sun uh, would be excavated and would be piling up next to minors who were living there short term and then flying back to their homes. And that just seemed to me, if you were trying to design a global pandemic, that might be one of the ways you go about it. Um, And I'm one of those people who believes, you know, the way career counselors say, find something you're doing anyway and find a way to make it pay. You know, I was thinking, well, since I'm going to be obsessing about this, I might as well try to write about it.
3: In in fact, I think you describe yourself as an armchair
1: uh, catastrophist. (laughs) Yeah, that's another bad way of putting it, I think. I mean, I don't think I go through my daily uh, round uh, terrified, but I do have three children um, and I do worry very much about the state of the world, um, the state of the planet and mankind's treatment of it.
3: In some ways, it's a trifecta, you know, uh, maybe the Bermuda Triangle of <laughs> calamities or, or of conditions coming together. I mean, one is so you have a microbe, you have climate change, and then you have the capitalism that is driving the mining. And all of this causes this microbe to be released. And in this case, it doesn't come from a bat or a pangolin, it comes from a goose. This is a reanimated goose bacteria. Without giving anything away, do you want to introduce us to this bacterium and also what happens, how it gets released?
1: Um, Well, um, it turns out that all sorts of sporulating bacterium get trapped in various layers of earth or rock or whatever. And I wanted to come up with one that would be, uh, rather than just a couple uh, thousands of years old, quite, quite old. And so I checked with some microbiologists. And one of the things I like to do is dump my problem in the lap of somebody who's smarter than I am. And fortunately, I teach at a place, Williams College, a liberal arts college, where I have access to the scientists on a kind of a daily basis. And so I I essentially said to a microbiologist who was sweet enough to work with me, uh, here's what I'm imagining. How would a pathogen like this operate? And she came up with the idea of something that had been trapped in the throat of an avian species and then actually ends up inside a rock. Um, that's how old it is, uh, and is still able to survive that once the rock is fractured, as rocks often are in the process of mining.
3: And this would have been a microbe that maybe would have not made the goose sick, but then when it's right. released, it's, it it does what they call a spillover and leaps into into humans. Exactly. Okay, so coming to a moment in the book where the CDC investigators are trying to figure out the origins of the pandemic, other than it started in Greenland, and they're interviewing Alec and asking him whether there was anything unusual that happened prior to the pandemic. But he's too scared to admit about his and Malik's secret visit to the pit. Now, here's a question Is it giving away too much to say? to say that there's a big question mark over whether that connection is ever made?
1: No, I don't think it's giving away too much. I think one of the things that it immediately uh, is facing epidemiological investigators when they're chasing something down is how many, first of all, what is this and where did it come from? But secondly, uh, are we dealing with more than one thing here? And that last question is a pretty crucial question. And because these pathogens mutate so quickly, it's not a very simple question a lot of the time. And that's where a lot of the dealing with human beings comes from, right? If we can track it back uh, pretty clearly to one source, then we have a different situation than if we're tracking it back to two different sources. So happily for the dramatic shape of a novel like mine, it becomes crucial to get information from this boy, even though this boy is traumatized enough that he's resistant to giving out information. And there's a moment late in the book, and I don't think I'm giving away a lot, or even I don't even care if I'm giving away a lot in this case. There's a moment late in the book, remember, when Alec uh, resolves that he is going to tell them. And one of the ambiguities um, that remains is, well, is he doing this too late or not?
3: Right. And is it going to matter, really, if we understand the origin at this point in the novel? Now, to be clear, and we haven't said this explicitly, but we should, you wrote this book before the COVID-19 pandemic and you were just about to release it, I think in February, 2020, and your agent or editor said, let's hold on here. What was it like, or what do you want us to know, Jim, about what it was like to release a book (laughs) about a pandemic during a pandemic?
1: (laughs) Well, I delivered the book Right as the pandemic was breaking, I delivered the book in February and none of us knew at that point what the right time to release a book about a pandemic during a pandemic might be. But it may it seem to make the most sense to not rush the book forward and to, to give it a little bit of time. And maybe since it's uh, literature rather than nonfiction, uh, maybe allow a little bit of space from the trauma of the catastrophe. So it was decided to wait almost a year. And one of the impacts that that had on the novel itself, which was uh, useful, was, you know, when you're writing a book like this, you have all this exposition to dump on the reader about how pandemics operate and how pandemic response operates. I was able to start cutting almost all of that because we all had a forced education in that uh, one way or the other. So my pretty slim book got even slimmer, which I was quite uh, pleased with. And in terms of what it's like, as you might expect, the experience of watching a catastrophe unfold right after you worked as hard as you could to try to imagine what a catastrophe like that would look like is a pretty surreal thing to go through.
3: It, it must have been, because sure you, you were kind of in the role of like a Cassandra-like figure.
1: Exactly, yeah. And, and one of the other, of course, sobering things about it is you, you quickly learn uh, that Cassandras are a dime a dozen. And of course, by definition, they're ignored, right? Um, so the fact that I had been waving my arms and, and saying stuff like this for years, well I'm a fiction writer that not many people have heard of, so why would anybody be listening to me anyway, right? And God knows, it's not like I was I was coming up with stuff that epidemiologists hadn't come up with, right? They were saying the same things.
3: If you could tell us what the title means, phase six.
1: Oh, um, phase six is the World Health Organization's highest level of disaster, essentially. Uh, but it has an additional meaning in the novel as well, and that is one of my protagonists, uh, a CDC investigator, who feels as though she's not very good at relationships. Uh, laid out for her boyfriend how she thought relationships operated, and they were sort of it was sort of an inexorable process that got you, eventually over to something like George Costanza's. It's not me, it's you or it's not you, it's me rather, and that was phase six. And he was sort of uh, floored by how fatalist she was.
3: Right. And as I was reading the book, I was on the lookout for the moment when the meaning of the title would reveal itself. And when the CDC investigator says, it's not you, it's me, I knew she was referring to relationships. But what it suggested to me was an admission by humans of what they've done. I mean, these incursions into wild areas, for example, the connection between climate change and pandemics, and that maybe it is time to take some responsibility. Maybe that was a little bit more meta than what you intended, but that's how I thought of
1: it. It's exactly how I intended it, Molly. And in fact, um, on top of that, the way in which there's something Slippery about the responsibility taken. I mean, there's a reason that when George Costanza says it, it's funny, right? I mean, uh, it's both I'm going to take responsibility now and some ways I'm trying to wiggle off the hook at the same moment um, by, by sounding generous. And that I think is all about the ways in which the, the way it lines up with the, the more scientific version of phase six is the way as human beings we simultaneously both take responsibility for things and refuse to take responsibility for them. And that's been in some ways our undoing, right? We say, oh, yeah, we all know that we're causing climate change. And then we go on doing it.
3: Jim Shepard, what a pleasure it is to talk to you. I enjoyed your book and your writing so much. Thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, thank you for having us, Molly. It was wonderful talking with you.
4: Jim Shepard is a novelist and short story writer. He teaches in the English department at Williams College. His novel about a pandemic triggered from melting and mined permafrost is Phase Six. Well, as Jim Shepard said, his fictional tale was inspired by the news that in 2016, a young boy died because of anthrax bacteria that had been exposed by melting Siberian permafrost. And from what epidemiologists and biologists told them about the possible viability of frozen microbes, including viruses and bacteria, you know, it sounds like this is kind of a realistic story. But, of course, we wanted to investigate that further.
3: And, Seth, on this show, you've talked to scientists who have described a couple different organisms that have been reanimated <laughs> after being frozen for very long periods of time.
4: Yes, yes. There was the rotifer, remember? That was 24,000 years in the ice or whatever. And it, it came back. And a rotifer is a multicellular organisms not not many cells but and then there were the worms and those are also multicellular and and they came back after 40,000 years these things they start wriggling they they show all the signs of being alive and so we know that organisms can come back. Microorganisms can come back, right? You can't bring back a, a woolly mammoth. They won't. They won't be alive even if you do defrost them. But for these microorganisms, they can come back. So, if, if microorganisms can come back, pathogenic microorganisms can come back too.
3: So, so that's right, Seth. Those are organisms that were 24,000 years old and 40,000 years old, and they came back wriggling back to life. But that's not the same as a pathogen coming back, a bacteria or a virus, and infecting us. So if you remember the anthrax bacteria that killed the boy, that had been found in a reindeer carcass, and I believe that was in 1941. So that was able to sustain itself for 80 years. The question is, what about other diseases? So what scientists have found is fragments of RNA from the 1918 flu. These are from bodies buried in Alaska. And DNA fragments of smallpox found in the bodies of victims of smallpox in Siberia. These are all bodies that have been since exposed because of thawing permafrost. And those fragments of DNA and RNA are not the same as a live virus. So they didn't find any viruses that were then reanimated.
4: True, But a virus is, in fact, just an RNA string, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not so hard for me to believe that something pathogenic could come from the past. That just doesn't strike me as an, you know, an unreal scenario. Because if things that are harmless can come back from the past, I don't know the difference between something that's pathogenic and something that's harmless. Okay, so
3: in your opinion, you'd say though, even though scientists have not found any viable viruses, you still think it's possible? I think it's,
4: uh, yeah, I think it is possible. Uh, Not just viruses, but also bacteria. I mean, I think that this is a selection effect problem at this point. Might be wrong, but it strikes me, I mean, they haven't, you know, seen so many that they can say, oh, well, the one in a million bacteria, whatever the number is, that are dangerous to you, uh, we didn't see that. Well, yeah, but they only, you know, saw a handful of things that have come back.
3: It is true that we're seeing evidence on both sides here, that some organisms can survive a very, very long time in the ice and others, they don't seem to survive with the same kind of robustness. The bottom line is we don't know what will happen, but what we do know is that life is hardier It turns out to be hardier than we could imagine, and that ice is a great preservative. And the ice is going away, and the permafrost is warming. So we have a situation set up for great uncertainty as to what will happen next.
4: The release of long-frozen microbes from permafrost may or may not trigger the kind of calamity that Mr. Shepard imagines, but that thawing of the permafrost is already exposing carbon in the ground to industrious microbes who then emit both carbon dioxide and methane, and those are very potent greenhouse gases.
3: We discuss that next as we look at what it means for us when the permanently frozen ground thaws. This episode is de-permafrosting on Big Picture Science.
4: Earth's surface is warming, but the Arctic is warming faster, roughly three times faster than the rest of the planet. And most of the world's permafrost is in the Arctic. The current estimate by the U.S. Geological Survey is that the Arctic could lose up to 70% of its permafrost by 2100.
3: We've heard about some of the consequences of thawing permafrost, including the exposure of mega and microfauna, but there is an urgent concern regarding thawing ice. That is the production of greenhouse gases. Thawing permafrost exposes carbon-rich organic material that is a feast from microbes who then churn out carbon dioxide and methane gas. The amount of carbon frozen in permafrost is measured to be around 1,400 billion tons. That is according to the National Snow and Ice Data Center. And even scientists not given to hyperbole have dubbed the potentially catastrophic release of emissions as the methane bomb. To understand the role that
4: microbes might play in creating it, ecologist Scott Seleska from the University of Arizona and his colleagues pull on knee-high boots and tread through the squishy peat of Stordalen Mire in Sweden.
2: This is a, a discontinuous permafrost zone, so there are patches that are frozen. You can walk on solid ground very easily. There are other parts that have thawed that when it's completely thawed, it's in, basically it's underwater. It's an inundated wetland where you could be up to your knees or waist in water. And so you're putting a core down into this very squishy, mucky mess, and you can smell the pungency of the different plants that are growing there. It's, it's both thrilling because, as an ecologist, I really appreciate the world of nature and being in nature, but it's also disheartening and, and sobering to realize how quickly the system is changing.
3: Dr. Seleska and his team are sequencing the genomes of the bacteria and archaea, that is, the most ancient class of single-celled organisms, that are found there. This is part of the project IsoGene, which he co-founded with the goal of determining which microbes are doing what to the carbon-rich permafrost as it thaws.
2: If you think about where the carbon is in the Earth system, you might think about big tropical forests or uh, where there's all that carbon in in trees. I like to think of permafrost as basically upside-down forests where instead of in the wood uh, above ground, you have this immense store of carbon in the soil below ground that's, in in the case of permafrost, frozen away.
4: This reminds me of something uh, I noted in Europe where they had something called peat in English. It was kind of a soft coal, and it was just sort of partially decomposed organic material from plants.
2: Yeah, that's exactly the definition of peat. Peat is is basically undecomposed plants or only partially decomposed plants that is then sort of frozen in time in that state of only partial decomposition. And you can actually identify, if you dig into the peat, you know, little pieces that look like they might have been leaves or stems uh, long ago.
4: I see. Okay, so melting...
2: Permafrost. I mean, let's say thawing permafrost. Oh,
4: let's yes, melting. I guess it would take a higher temperature
2: to melt. No, just no. Just think about you know your your frozen meat in the refrigerator. You don't pull out a steak to to melt it. Uh, You pull out a steak to thaw it. The the water melts, but the but the peat like your steak thaws. It stays there. Okay, right, thaw. I, I hope I don't make that mistake again. It's a common thing that people say. It's it's one of the, like the, the little indicators of whether you're a real permafrost scientist is whether you say it thaws or whether it melts.
4: So even the Alaska pipeline has been said to be possibly threatened by thawing permafrost, uh, but that's not what you're interested in studying. You're interested in studying sort of microscopic consequences.
2: Right, that's right. You know, the, all that organic matter that I said has been Built up over thousands of years of plants growing and building this upside-down forest, if you will, is leaving behind all this really rich, yummy carbon. But it's frozen, so like the steak in your freezer, it's um, not doing anything. But if you if the freezer freezer started failing and that steak started thawing, it would not last long before it was smelly and decomposing and not no longer edible. That's because the microbes are getting their food supply from decomposing that thawing. In the case of the freezer, your meat. In the case of permafrost, decomposing uh, those plant parts. And when it decomposes, it either turns into carbon dioxide or methane, and those two are powerful greenhouse gases. So that means that all this carbon that's stored in the in the frozen permafrost peat, which is amounts to over twice as much as there is in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, starts to be susceptible to being lost through microbial decomposition and attack.
4: Okay, let me just make sure I understand this. These are microbes that are already in the permafrost. These are not microbes that come in from the air or something like that.
2: Well, it's, it's, it's some of both, actually. So there, yes, there are microbes frozen into the permafrost and they are activated or released when the permafrost thaws. What we're concerned about is that those microbes, which some of which are thawed in the permafrost, some of which are, as you said, opportunistically coming in from of the already thawed areas, even from the atmosphere. There's microbes that are blown around in the dust in the atmosphere When this feast gets unleashed, they will move to take advantage of that available carbon, that available energy, that food supply. And you mentioned
4: that what they then produce as exhaust gases from their own metabolism is carbon dioxide, which doesn't sound like a good thing to add to the atmosphere, and then also methane, right? And they're both greenhouse gases, right? Yes.
2: Carbon dioxide is the one we usually talk about, but methane is in some cases even worse. It's 30 times more powerful per unit mass than a carbon dioxide molecule. So, a little bit of an equal amount of methane and carbon dioxide, uh, the methane is 30 times worse in terms of amplifying climate change. What exactly happens depends a lot on who's inside that microbial black box. Who's actually decomposing the carbon whether it's one species or another species of microbe?
4: Well, you've you've started an initiative called isogeny. I hope I'm not mispronouncing the Greek there. So, the idea is you and other people who uh, who know about these things, are up there in Sweden trying to, if you will, quantify the extent and the nature of the problem.
2: IsoGD comes from isotopes of methane, different flavors of methane, if you will. You can tell what microbe produced the methane by what flavor it is, what isotope it has. And uh, the other part is geni, standing for genome. So we're really looking into who's who of the microbial world by looking at their genomes. And we sequence whole genomes, uh, not just of individual organisms, but of everything that is in the soil. So we have what we call a metagenome, a, a catalog of all the genomic uh, genes and what their activity could be across the thousands of species uh, of microbes that are in the soil that can tell us what they're capable of doing how much methane they're able to produce. I,
4: I, I must say that strikes me. It's truly amazing. It's like trying to analyze overlapping fingerprints at a crime scene and something like that, how you separate out the individuals. Well, does it only depend on the species of microbes or does it also depend on, you know, whether this thing is partially thawed, a little bit thawed, you know, fully dead, that kind of thing?
2: <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Seth. That's a really important question. In fact, that's one of the, one of the first findings of this, this isogeny project was that who's there matters. Sort of look for the name tag of whose DNA it is, and we find out uh, that there's different microbes that are um, metabolizing the peat in different ways and producing basically slightly different kinds of methane. One kind of methane produced by one kind of microbe and another kind produced by other kinds of microbes. We're talking about two different what we call metabolic pathways for methane production. There's the a hydronotrophic methane, which seems to be the dominant kind that's being produced by the microbes in the only partially thawed bogs. And then as, as we get fully thawed fens that sort of submerge into the water table, we get much more active community of microbes, greater diversity of microbes. And we're able to sort of put together the story that shows that as permafrost thaws, the microbial community changes and it shifts from sort of miserly microbes that can barely decompose some methane to expansive, very hungry, active communities that are decomposing all kinds of methane through other pathways, and we can see that both in the shift in the microbial community and in the change in the type of methane we measure coming out.
4: Obviously not a simple problem.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, wh- who cares, right? Who, ca- <laughs> who cares what kind of methane, what kind of, what flavor of methane that's coming out or what kind of microbe is doing it? It's, it's coming out, right? But it's coming out differently depending on who's doing it, and understanding the future. If you want to predict the future of how much of this frozen peat gets turned into methane and amplifies the climate change, it turns out you need to know something about the microbial biology of the guys that are doing it.
4: So in order to understand the, uh, the play here, you've got to know the characters, it sounds like, but I mean... Exactly. <laughs> okay, but th- this is a little scary. I mean, we started off by you noting that uh, the amount of carbon in the permafrost is very substantial compared to I don't know the Amazon rainforest it's still a lot of carbon and this strikes me as a positive feedback system in the sense that you know, you melt a little bit of the permafrost, it produces methane and CO2, which results in warmer temperatures, which melts more of the permafrost, which, uh, you know, releases more CO2. I mean, it just gets worse
2: and worse. That's the positive feedback that you don't actually think very positively about. You want positive feedback from your boss at work, but you don't want positive feedback in the climate system. And so that's what we're talking about here and trying to understand exactly how strong is that positive feedback.
4: Well, because some of the permafrost is thawing now, presumably both CO2 and, and methane are being made now, do you have some idea of how this is going to go? Suppose there's a, another degree Celsius of, of, of warming in the Arctic. I mean, that's not impossible. Does that that's just yeah? It's going happen. Does that just increase the amount of these greenhouse gases by I don't know ten percent, twenty percent, or does it double it? Or
2: well, you you made a good point, Seth, by pointing out that this is this is happening now before our eyes. We're measuring you know this this summer we were up there measuring methane being produced by the thawed areas, and this is something that's that we've observed from because going back and looking at aircraft records since the nineteen seventies or even the nineteen forties, this landscape is. is dramatically changed we can actually see it how it's changed from the few years that we've been working there so there's there is right now much more methane being produced by this this one you know wetland that we're studying in northern sweden than there was when we started 10 years ago um, and that's happening across the arctic and so that, this is a challenge that like i said that's not just hypothetical or, or in the future but but is happening now and will continue to happen as the climate warms. Scott Seleska, thanks so very much for speaking with us. My pleasure, Seth. Thank you for having me.
3: Scott Seleska is an ecologist and professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at the University of Arizona, and he is the co-founder of the microbial sequencing project, Isogenie. All right, Seth, what is the big picture here as the permafrost thaws? You know, we've all heard about the melting ice sheets in Antarctica
4: and Greenland and so forth. But this is permafrost. It's a little different. This is frozen ground. And years ago, I read about the threat to the Alaska pipeline by melting permafrost. But these things we've discussed in this show, these are things that had never occurred to me, that you might, in fact, release even more greenhouse gases and methane, which is a very effective, if that's the kind of adjective you want to use, greenhouse gas.
3: And, and for me, the big picture here is this possible feedback loop
4: yeah, well, that's that we right. might get. Yeah, it's a positive feedback loop, which is not what you want here. Yeah. I mean, it's like air conditioners, right? You know, the, the climate's warming, so you use your air conditioner more often, but that requires more power from the generating plant, which is burning some sort of fossil fuel, which creates more warming. So it's a positive feedback
3: loop, exactly what you don't want. And this is creating a whole area of uncertainty for what will happen next. What will be revealed by the ice? Uh, Will we have an accelerated situation? Will this greatly contribute to the climate emergency that we are experiencing now? Yeah. So in a way, you know, scientists have sort
4: of blown the whistle on this this potential danger. And uh, when they do that and when they investigate it further, such as what they are doing, you know, which microbes are doing what and so forth, and there's always the hope that you can find a fix or, short of that, that you can find some sort of other mitigation that would, you know, slow this down because you don't need positive feedback when it comes to a warming climate.
3: Well, we couldn't do the show without the cool heads and the talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. They make big picture science possible. I am executive producer of the program, Molly Bentley.
4: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David, to NASA, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other endeavors, also studies microbes in extreme environments such as permafrost. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
3: This episode of Big Picture Science is called Depermafrosting.